Hello and welcome from Good Shepherd Church of Camarillo. We're so glad you're with us. Here's today's message. I'm going to invite you to turn to Psalm 109. So uh, take out your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Psalm 109. We're continuing this series called A Psalm for All Seasons. And I have to say that um, it was poor planning on my part as I planned out this series um, because today, Valentine's Day, February 14th, on a day you'd, we'd normally kind of focus on love, you know, maybe the love of God or, or some theme of love. Psalm 109 talks about enemies. <laughs> so how is that for, for our timing here today on Valentine's Day? We're, we're talking about enemies, enemies that are talked about here in the Psalms and uh, specifically looking at Psalm 109. But here's the thing, as we think about Valentine's Day and, and loved ones, unfortunately in this, this broken world, in this fractured world that we live in, loved ones sometimes can become enemies. Unfortunately, spouses can turn into enemies. Sometimes children can turn into enemies. Sometimes in-laws can turn into enemies. But it works its way other places in our lives too. Sometimes a boss can become our enemy. Maybe an employee can become an enemy. Maybe it's someone in the church that has become an enemy. When we think about our lives, there are many people that can become enemies, can turn to be our enemies. And, and today, as we look at Psalm 109, what we're going to see is, is what, what do we do? What do we do with these enemies? What do we do when people turn against us? When we have enemies in our lives, maybe someone who turns against us for no reason at all. The truth is that we all have enemies in our lives, whether it's now, whether you're feeling that right now, or whether you even realize it or not, or we know that there will probably be enemies that you will face someday in the future. The Psalms actually speak a lot about enemies. And these Psalms are in the form of prayers. And in the Psalms, uh, scholars call these Psalms imprecatory Psalms. It's kind of a big word, but I want to teach you what imprecatory Psalms are. One definition states it, states it this way. Imprecatory Psalms are Psalms that contain curses or prayers for the punishment of the psalmist's enemies. And that's what Psalm 109 is all about here. We don't know exactly the setting. This is a psalm of David. We don't know exactly uh, what the background was, what set the stage for this psalm. These words of uh, uh, prayers uh, of curse, curses upon David's enemies. We know that uh, David was being pursued by Saul much of his life, by King Saul, who had become jealous of David and who hated David for, for no good reason. 
David served Saul, loved him, and Saul became his enemy. It could have been when King David's son Absalom betrayed him, and Absalom and his friends all started to tell lies against David. We don't know the the setting. But as we look at Psalm 109 here, I have to say that as we get into these verses, there's some of these verses that honestly, I don't even, I don't really even want to (laughs) read. To be perfectly honest with you, as we read some of these verses, uh, you're going to kind of wonder, like, wow, am I, am I hearing this in church? Is this even appropriate? As we begin, even before we read, I want to be clear about what these psalms are meant for, these imprecatory psalms, these psalms against the enemy. David Taylor, I've mentioned him before in the book, Open and Unafraid, the Psalms as a Guide to Life. I highly recommend that book. But this is what he says about these psalms, and specifically with Psalm 109 here. He says, This isn't a psalm for polite company. It isn't a psalm for people who only want things to be nice and for people to get along. Nor is it a psalm for those who wish to remain indifferent to the harsh realities of the world or to deny the visceral desires of the human heart. He says, it's a psalm for people who look at the world for what it is, full of broken people, dark forces, and harsh conditions. And he continues to explain the purpose of these psalms. He says, the purpose of enemy psalms is to remind us that the violent and sinful ways of human beings including our own violent, sinful ways, need to be named so that God can step in and do something about it. They're a way to talk to God. And this is the key. This is what David Taylor says. He says, the goal of these psalms is healing, not self-gratification. Healing, not self-gratification. What I want to focus on this morning is that the single most important way to deal with the enemies in our life is to bring them to the God who can do something about it. Bring them to the one true God who is perfectly holy, who is perfectly loving, and who is perfectly just. And what we're going to see is how to entrust our enemies to God. I want to read the first few verses here of Psalm 109. This is what David says. This is his prayer. He says, Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Let's pray. God, as we open your word today, we pray you would speak to us. Think of that 
song, Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth and plant it deep down in us, God. That is our prayer here this morning as we look at this psalm together. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do we entrust our enemies to God? I want to give you three things, three ways to entrust our enemies to God. And the first is to recognize. The first thing we have to do is to recognize the enemy. And we see that in these first few verses here. One of the biggest problems that we have as believers is either we're aloof to the work of the enemy in our life, or on the flip side, we can be overly sensitive and we don't correctly recognize the work of the enemy. And we can be so quick to label someone or, or something our enemy. Maybe before we have the facts. Or if someone just simply disagrees with us or opposes us, they can so quickly, we can so quickly label them as our enemy. And that's why it's so extremely important to know who the enemy is and at the same time who the enemy isn't. And first I want to focus here on who the enemy isn't. And I want to clarify something as I list some of these things. As I list some of these things, I'm not saying that, or what I, what I want to clarify is that as I list these things, some of these things are not the enemy, which is sometimes what we can jump to a conclusion that someone or something is the enemy. But what I want to clarify is that some of these things that I'll mention are evil that the enemy can use. Because we have one primary enemy, our adversary, the devil, as the Bible talks about. And the devil wants to use anything and anyone to work against us, to attack us. That's the way the enemy works. But what is not the enemy, or who is not necessarily the enemy in and of themselves? Well, first of all, a certain government leader or a political leader might not be the enemy. Could Satan use certain political leaders, government leaders? He, he can, and can governments become corrupt? They can. And Satan can, can work through those entities, through those governments, through those leaders. But in and of themselves, they not, might not be the enemy. Or maybe it's just someone that we get weird vibes from. Maybe someone sends us a mixed message and, and we, maybe we suspect that someone might be talking behind our backs and uh, without knowing for a fact, we just jump to a conclusion and we, we just think, I, mean, I am almost positive that that person is talking evil against me or speaking lies about me. This is the other trap that we fall into when we think of enemies is just someone who simply disagrees with us. You notice that we have plenty of things in the day and age which we're living right now, plenty of things that we can disagree about. What is the right response? Or what was, what should have been the right response to COVID-19? Or the right place of government in our lives? 
or what is racism and what is maybe just perceived racism. Or we can disagree over lifestyles that the Bible specifically speaks about it and calls sinful. The enemy is not just someone who simply opposes you. It's not just those people over there. Whether it's maybe a family member or a neighbor or, or a friend or an acquaintance or a coworker that just simply disagrees with you or simply opposes you, it doesn't mean that they're automatically the enemy. What we have to understand is that the enemy, the enemy, wants to use anything and anyone to attack us and to tear us down. So who or what are the enemies in our lives? Well, the first few verses that we just read, Psalm 109, we see who and what our enemies are. And from the language, David is obviously experiencing true hatred. He is experiencing true evil shown against him. Verse 2, he says, Wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. Verse 3, he says, They encircle me with words of hate and, and attack me, what does he say, without cause, for no reason, being attacked for no reason at all. He says in verse 4, that his enemies return his love with accusations. And so it's clear here that he's, he's even showing love to his enemies. But they're only rewarding him with accusations. In verse 5, he says, They reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. That's the type of evil that David is experiencing here. This is a mighty work of the enemy. People who are attacking him for no cause, for no reason, but only because their hearts are evil. Verse 6, moving on here, it says, Appoint a wicked man against him. This is where he starts to pray here. Appoint a wicked man against him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. And this word here, accuser, the Hebrew word for accuser is Satan, the one that we call the evil one. And what we notice here is that it's the accuser, it's the evil one that has been used against David, that has worked in these hearts of whoever these evil men are to speak lies against David and to pour out evil against him and to reward him evil for good and just to hate him. But here we start to see David coming before the Lord and being completely honest and open before God To call out the enemy. To call out the enemy. To call out the accuser. What do we know about our enemy? What do we know about the enemy? Well, we know that the enemy, as it 
mentioned here, the accuser is our adversary, the devil. And the Bible gives us some insight into who the enemy is. That the enemy is alive and active in each one of our lives. 1 Peter 5, 8, it warns us, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That's what the enemy actively is doing. Prowling around like a roaring lion. He knows us up and down, inside and out, in so many ways. Knows exactly how to press our buttons. And his purpose is to prowl around looking for someone to attack. John 10.10 says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Talking about the enemy. John 8.44, we see where all of this evil stems from. All of these lies stem from the enemy. John 8.44, Jesus says this. He says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. So what we need to recognize in our own lives is that there's the work of the enemy, and then there's evil and the people and the lies and the pride and the accusations that the enemy uses toward each one of us and against each one of us. How aware are you day to day of the enemy's work in your life? It's not a fun thought, is it? It's not fun to think about. But do you recognize the work of the enemy in your life? The problem is that it's not always obvious to see. Ephesians 6.11, as Paul, the Apostle Paul urges us to put on the armor of God, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the authorities, against the rulers, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The spiritual forces of evil in this place in which we live. The enemy is alive and at work. But the great comfort that we have is what it says in 1 John. The promise that we have is that he who is in you, Jesus Christ, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And I just was talking to someone this past week who was sharing just a lot of struggles they were facing how this person's mind has just been messed with over these last several months. And, and we know that mental health is, is really just th that industry, that, that the practices for, for caring for mental health, mental health are, are thriving right now, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately. Because in this time of chaos and this time of confusion and we're 
rhythms have been thrown off. The enemy is using that. The enemy is using it to mess with people's minds, to mess with their souls, to mess with their hearts. And if we're not aware of that, we can fall prey to that lion who prowls around seeking to devour us. But if we do not have the one living inside of us, we can be easily overcome. When I said to this guy that I was talking to, I said, don't underestimate, don't underestimate the work of the enemy in your life. Because he was trying to make sense of so much of this. And he said, wow, that's what I needed to hear. And that's making so much more sense right now. And David right here is, is pouring himself out before God, naming these enemies, naming this trouble that he's facing, this evil, this wickedness that he's facing, and bringing it to the one who can do something, who can do something about his enemies. But it's first because he recognized the enemy. And I want to urge you and encourage you in these days that we're living in right now to pray, to pray regularly for discernment, to pray, oh God, would you make me aware? God, would you help me to discern the enemy's work in my life? God, would you help me to overcome, help me to recognize helping to know my own weaknesses and where the enemy might, might work his way in to attack. And Lord God, I need you. You promised me that you living inside of me is greater than he who is in the world that is coming to attack me. May God give us great discernment, great recognition of the enemy's work in our life, just as David recognized here. The second key to entrusting our enemies to God is what we see in the next several verses here. We don't have time to read all of these, but verses 6 through 20, to refuse to let the evil be ignored. We can't let evil just be ignored. And, and this is the part of the psalm I'm talking about that part of me doesn't want to read this. Because this does not sound like church language right here. But what we have to remember as we look into some of these verses is remember who these words are spoken to. These curses that David prays. Who are these words spoken to? David's not speaking these curses upon his enemies. He's bringing them to the feet of of God Almighty. One author says, These words are shocking to modern readers, but these prayers are in accordance with God's curse against sin. What are some of these curses here? Look at verse 7. He says about his enemy, he says, Let his prayer be counted as sin. You ever prayed that for someone? Wow. Let his prayer be counted as sin. Verse 13, 
may his posterity, his descendants, be cut off. Verse 15, he prays that God would cut off the memory of them from the earth. Verse 17, he says, let curses come upon him. Verse 20, may this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. Wow. I'll let you read some of these other verses on your own. Verses 6 through 20. But these curses, as harsh as they are, these curses actually rest on biblical principles. And here's why. Here's why they rest on biblical principles. Because David's enemies are unrepentant. And this is a reminder to us how seriously God treats sin and the consequences of sin and evil that may live in us or that may be shown toward us. Verse 8, I want to show a couple examples of this. This is what he prays. He says, May another take his office. Why would he pray that? Why would he pray that about his enemy? Here's why. Because to pray for him to continue in his position would be to pray for evil to prosper. And the enemy's sins can't be forgiven because he's not repentant. And so for David to pray that his enemies would, that their sins would be overlooked would be to pray for God to violate his character to violate his law, to violate his holiness. Verse 9, he prays, May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Wow. How is that okay? How is that just? But well, we see this matching up with a biblical principle of justice. We, we see in Ezekiel 18 that children should not be punished for the sins of their parents or or vice versa but it's also true from exodus 20 verse 5 that that god it says is a jealous god punishments of the fathers to the third and fourth generation but here's the key of those who hate him and so for those who continue to live in the sinful ways of their parents and their ancestors. They're going to share in the consequences of sin and the judgment for their sin. But thankfully, once again, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And thank you, thankfully, God provided a way for that chain of sin, for that chain of generational sin to be broken through the power of Jesus Christ. But for the unrepentant, these curses still stand. This is just a result of, of sin, the consequences to sin, the judgment that comes upon the unrepentant. And we see David listing reasons that really are consistent with the holiness of God. Verse 16, he says, 
For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. Verse 17, he says, he loved to curse. Let curses come upon him. Verse 18 says, he didn't even delight in blessing. Wow. For the unrepentant, these curses stand. God's judgment comes. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? It means that we cannot let evil be ignored. But at the same time, remember. Remember who David is speaking this to. He's speaking it to God Almighty, the one who is holy, the one who is just, the one who is going to deal perfectly with humankind. But we can't let evil be ignored. One author notes this. He says, In the face of monstrous evil, the worst possible response is for us to feel nothing. What must be felt is grief, rage, and outrage. In their absence, evil becomes an acceptable commonplace. And that can so easily happen in us. That has happened in our culture, in our society, that evil has just become commonplace. Martin Luther once commented that, he said, we cannot pray the Lord's Prayer. Think about this. We cannot pray the Lord's Prayer without cursing. Because every time we pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're praying that the plans of Satan and all who serve him will fail and that they will receive the judgment that they deserve. He says we should indeed pray that God will lead our enemies to repentance and forgiveness as Christ did. But we must also pray that all who continue to defy God will receive the justice that they deserve. And in doing so, we exercise faith. In praying these prayers, we, we place our enemies, our adversaries before God and notice that David does not take matters into his own hands. He does not seek revenge. His solution is prayer. His solution is prayer. This is a prayer. And think of those words of that song, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pains we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer, even our enemies. But don't allow evil to just be ignored. Bring it to the feet of God. And go to Psalm 109 and just recognize that, God, you are going to deal justly toward the unrepentant. And God, you know the enemies that I'm facing. You know what they deserve. And at the same time, we recognize what we deserve. And in that process, the, the, the last part, the last way that we entrust our enemies to God is, is to relinquish control to him to release it all 
back to him. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 139, a beautiful psalm about how God created us and uniquely formed us. But if you read through Psalm 139, which has always just been thought of as a beautiful psalm, Psalm 139 actually has a few verses of curses like this, similar to what we read in Psalm 109. But if you continue to read in Psalm 139, you get to verses 19 through 22, where David calls these prayers, these curses upon evil people. But then... What comes right after that? He prays. He prays. But God, search me. Search me and know my heart. He says, try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. So as we think about our enemies our adversaries. And as we long for God's justice, as we know and and place our faith in, in God Almighty who deals perfectly and justly with our enemies, at the same time we allow him to search our hearts and to try us and to see if there be any wicked way in us. One of my kids this past week asked me, Dad, what is, what's your favorite movie? Or what's one of your favorite movies? And one of the ones I immediately thought of that I think ties in well with this was that classic movie, Ben-Hur. How many of you are, I see some heads, heads nodding. There's the old, you know, 50s version with Charlton Heston who plays Judah Ben-Hur. Uh, grew up in this wealthy Jewish family, and, and eventually his childhood friend, Masala, becomes his enemy. He's falsely accused of, of something, an, an incident, and, and they were already at, at odds with each other, and Masala took that opportunity as a commander of the Roman, uh, uh, Roman um, as, a, as a Roman soldier, and took it upon himself to falsely accuse Judah Ben-Hur of, of injuring, um, I forget who it was that was coming through on the parade. Who was that, Christy? What's that? A commander. Yeah, a commander. And accused him and said, this is my opportunity to get rid of him, to get rid of his family. And Judah Ben-Hur got sent off as a slave in the ship, in the galleys. Treated horribly, but, but what kept him going, what kept him going was this hatred that he had toward his enemy, Masala. And he spent three years on that ship and, and was determined, he was determined, I am going to make it home. What kept him going was remembering how much he hated Masala and how much he wanted revenge. And he made it. 
after this shipwreck, he somehow miraculously survived on a floating, some floating wood and, and came to shore and eventually made it, made it back, trained to be, uh, to, to, to do a chariot, ride a chariot, race a chariot, and um, came up against Masala in this climax of the movie, this incredible chariot race. It's kind of what that movie is known for. And he was fueled. He was fueled with anger and rage and just wanted revenge toward Masala. And, and that scene plays out and, and they've got it out for each other round and round that track. Finally, finally, Masala flies out of his chariot, gets run over, dragged by those horses and chariots, all mangled. They're almost dead. And Judah Ben-Hur is thinking, I got him. I got him. Finally, I can release this hatred. I can release this anger toward my enemy. Maybe it'll go away. But Masala survives just for a little while, survives long enough to let Judah know that his sister and his mom are actually still alive. They've been in prison for all those years. And they developed leprosy. And they were sent off to the leper colony, the Valley of the Lepers. And just as Masala gives him this news, Masala dies. And guess what? Judah is once again filled with hatred, filled with anger, and can't get revenge anymore. And so he goes and he finds his mom and his sister who are suffering from leprosy, and he feels like his, his life is, is just futile, is pointless. And this anger and hatred has overtaken his life until, until he goes into Jerusalem, takes his mom and his sister, and who does he meet? He meets Jesus. There are several points in the movie where he, he meets Jesus Christ, doesn't know exactly who he is, but at the end of the movie, the end of the movie, Jesus is being led off to be crucified right outside the city of Jerusalem. And there's Judah and his mom and his sister wondering, who is this man? Who is this man who has helped so many people and who is, even in the, as he faces his enemies, is being led off as an innocent man. How is that even possible? And in that time, he knew that this man could do something for him and do something for his mom and his daughter, or his, his sister. And it's in that moment where Jesus then dies on the cross the thunder rolls, the lightning flashes, the earth shakes, that instantly his mom and his sister receive healing. 
But more importantly, he receives healing in his own heart. In his own heart that was filled with hatred, that was filled with anger, that was filled with a desire for revenge. Jesus changed everything for him. He realized he was free of that hatred. Even though his human enemy triumphed over him, Jesus brought healing. And Jesus changes everything about each one of our hearts toward our enemies. Think about what Jesus said. We read part of this earlier. He says, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your cloak as well. It says, If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. Jesus changes everything about how we view our enemies. We can do what Jesus says because of what we read in Psalm 109 in wrapping up. David releases control to God, relinquishes control into the hands of Almighty God. He says, But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast love is good deliver me. Because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. God, I place it in your hands. Verse 26, he says, Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. God, I give it all back over to you. Relinquish control. He says, verse 30, With my mouth I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. Wow. Talk about relinquishing control back to God. That's why we don't have to seek revenge. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Only the person who is totally free of his own desire for revenge and free of hate and who is sure not to use his prayers to satisfy his own lust for revenge, only such a person can pray with a pure heart what David prays in another Psalm 58. He says, Shatter the fangs of the young lions. O Lord, break the teeth in their mouth. Only those who are totally free of their own desire for revenge. Last and most important, we remember 
What does the Bible describe, or what does the, the Bible describe us as before coming to know Jesus Christ, before being saved? The Bible describes us as enemies of God. Romans 5, 10, it says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We who are once enemies of God have been reconciled to God through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And the reality is, is that whatever human enemy we are facing right now, God loves that enemy, does not want judgment for them, no more than he wanted judgment for each one of us who were once enemies of God himself. But thanks be to God that while we were enemies, we have been reconciled to him through the death of his son. And that changes everything about how we entrust our enemies to God, knowing that he is God, he is on his throne, he is perfectly holy, he is perfectly just. He says, do not seek revenge. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And we come back to God Almighty and place our enemies before him knowing that it's his heart that even our enemies would be reconciled and that our enemies would experience the forgiveness that we have experienced. That's really, when we talk about Valentine's Day, when we talk about love, like the love we sang about in that song, reckless love, the love that chases us down fights till we're found, leaves the 99, chases after each one of us, even when we were enemies of God. That's really the message of Valentine's Day. The message that we were enemies, but loved by a God who loved us even when we were still sinners. Wow. Do you believe that today? Do you embrace that today? You never have? If you are still wondering, God, am I an enemy of you? I don't want to be an enemy of you any longer. You too can be reconciled. Cry out to him. God, help me. I need forgiveness. I want to be reconciled to you. I want to be in a right relationship, a pure relationship. I want to experience that love. Bible says it very simply. Call in the name of the Lord and you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be reconciled. You will be forgiven and cleansed and no longer an enemy of God. I'm going to invite the team up as we close. We close today with this beautiful benediction song, The Blessing. 
And as we sing, as we hear this blessing that is spoken straight from Scripture, the words of the, this song is from the benediction in, that we find in Numbers chapter 6. What I want us to dwell on as we sing this incredible blessing that God gives us is to stand in awe of him. To stand in awe of him and recognize that, wow, even as we were enemies before him, he loved us with an everlasting love, longs to know us deeply and intimately, and he pours his blessing upon us over and over and over again. Let's pray. God, as we prepare to go now, and as we think of this topic of, of enemies and the enemies that we face in our lives, the adversary that we face day in and day out that wants to get in the way of our relationship with you, that wants to tear us down, discourage us. God, we pray for strength against the enemy. And God, as Jesus lives inside of us, that he would flow out of us, God, And that in his strength, that we would overcome. And now as we prepare to go, we receive this incredible blessing. That you say, Lord, bless you and keep you. The Lord, make his face to shine upon you. Be gracious to you. God, we stand in awe of you. We who were once enemies, brought near because of the work of Jesus Christ. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.